As Matt said a few minutes ago, we have uh, the joy and the pleasure of having some very special guests with us today. Uh, Mike and Phyllis Garman from East Ridge Baptist Church in Amarillo. Um, in, a, in about a month, uh, a group from our church will be going up to join them for a, a, a week-long camp that we'll be put, putting on there in the, in the community where the church is. And, and uh, we, we asked Mike if, if, if he and Phyllis would come down and uh, uh, speak to us today and let us know a little bit about the, the ministry that's going on there and how they got, got in, into that ministry. And Bonnie and I have gotten to hear some, some, some of the story, and, and you're, you're going to be blessed by, by what he has to share and also by what God is doing up in, in, in that part of, uh, of, of the world. So if you would, give, give Mike and Phyllis a warm welcome. Mike, come on in. Good morning. Well, we're neighbors. Amarillo isn't that far away, so uh, it's not like a a huge trip. But it's it's very very good to come here and appreciate Mark and and uh, some of you that uh, met with us last night. And I kind of feel like there might be a checklist over here because there were questions asked, and I said you have to wait till today to find out. So. I got to make sure I get all of those check marks taken care of today, or I'll I'll be in trouble. Um, anyway, thank you so and I'll, so much for inviting us to be here, and I'll give you just a little bit of personal background so you'll know a little bit why I come from a certain place. Um, in fact, there's some things my mother used to tell me. She says there's some things that you just need to keep a secret. You don't need to lie about it, but you don't need to publicize it either. And uh, it falls into this category. Um, I grew up in Arkansas, so you know what's coming next. Yes, I am a Razorback fan. Now, I've probably lost most of you right there. But if it will help any, uh, Red Raiders is my favorite Texas team. So, uh, so I have, yeah. So anyway, got that out of the way. And so I've, I've made a full disclosure there. Um, I became a Christian when I was six years old in vacation Bible school, and um, I surrendered, but I did not surrender to the ministry until 1985 after we had, uh, through, we had traveled through several states um, on, on a path and uh, ended up in Amarillo in 1985. I surrendered to the ministry at Hillcrest Baptist Church in Amarillo. And, uh, strangely enough, all of my ministry has been in the Amarillo area. I've spent 10 years as a youth minister and 22 years as a pastor. In January the 1st, I'll have been at East Ridge for 10 years at East Ridge Baptist. Now, I, uh, let me qualify this. I, I feel like I came from a single-parent home. I had uh, five brothers and sisters, of which I'm the youngest. Now, my brothers and sisters would not agree that I came from a single-parent home because what made that occur was four days before I was a year old, my father was, uh, died in an automobile accident, so I don't ever remember of having two parents. So I feel like I grew up in a single-parent home, but my brothers and sisters did not. When I was 31 years old, uh, at a pretty late age for this, was when I surrendered to the ministry and and I had fought it for a long time. I really had a, a pretty good idea that God was calling me into the ministry when I was 19 years old. But uh, um, 
part of the trek that I made through Kansas and Colorado was because I thought, you know, if I moved, God would maybe leave me alone, you know. But, uh, but I knew when he followed me into Kansas that I was in big trouble. So I knew I wasn't going to be able to get away. I have to say that these 32 years of ministry have been nothing short of amazing. Um, makes me wish that I did have more than 32 years, but the 32 years that I have had has been really amazing. I've seen God do some really amazing things. I do regret that I waited so long, but that's, that's in the past. Through the years, I've heard people say time and time again, you know, you just need to trust God. You need to trust God because... He's the God of the past, present, and the future. Uh, he, he is the only one who knows the future. Now, I know there's, uh, in years past especially, there's been lots of t TV advertising that if you just give them your credit card number, they can tell you all about the future. Um, but contrary to what they say, the only one that knows the future is God. And so he has the absolute best view of what we need to do in our life and the decisions that we make in our life. And I knew that when people told me that that was true. You know, I had no doubt about that. I knew it was true. But I didn't realize how important that fact would be to my ministry. I cannot tell you. I wish I could take time today to tell you everything that I have seen God weave together to make the ministry that exists at Eastridge today. But I tried to boil it down to two things that I thought was really important, not just for what's happened with us, but it's also two things that I believe that are very important to every single church and to every single person. And so I hope that when you go away today that you'll remember these two things. I'm not going to tell you too many of the details of what brought me to Eastridge, but I do want to tell you about Eastridge and... Uh, check off some of those boxes that I, that I am obligated to fill this morning. In 1954, which just happened to be the year that I was born, Grand Avenue Baptist Church in Amarillo, they became aware of how fast the Eastridge community was growing. And it was about four miles east of them. And um, there was an air base that was located to the east of the Eastridge community. And it was thriving, and the Eastridge community was a place where a lot of the service employees and uh, lived in this community that worked at the air base. And it was, just, it was just growing by leaps and bounds. But those that worked at the air base uh, had to travel a pretty fair distance to go to church. And so uh, Grand Avenue recognized that, and Eastridge Mission was formed in a, in a house in the Eastridge community. I'm not sure exactly how long it lasted in that house, but it was just really a matter of weeks before they knew that it, it was going to be way bigger than that. And so a group of people bought two city blocks in Eastridge, two full city blocks. And then they immediately built a 20 by 80 foot uh, church. 1,600 square foot, a lot of houses are bigger than that. But uh, to make a long story short, they, they grew by leaps and bounds and they were expanding and before long they had added on to that building until it was an 18,000 square foot structure 
which almost completely covered one of the city blocks. Now the other block, they didn't really know why they bought it. It was just part of the deal and they bought it and it was there and, and it turned out that they used it for parking because by 1960 the congregation had grown to over a thousand and it was, it was thriving. It was three Sunday services uh, in the morning. If there would be an example of the perfect church plant, I would have to say that Eastridge Baptist was it. I mean, it was just uh, a picture of steady growth. People were being saved and being baptized, and they were being discipled. They were well organized. They were having amazing vacation Bible schools and all kinds of outreach. There was planning going on all the time on how they were going to have additional growth. The future was bright, and everything right on track. Everything was perfect until it wasn't. In 1965, the federal government decided to close, abruptly decided to close the Amarillo Air Base. There were two subdivisions, one to, on the west side and one on the east side of East Ridge, uh, two housing developments that were, uh, were building houses as fast as they could get them up. So immediately the construction just came to a halt. And people begin to move out of Eastridge. And the airbase closed ahead of schedule in September 1967. By 1970, it was a different community. I've been told at that time that there was a 60% vacancy rate in the neighborhood. 60% of the houses were empty, totally empty. And you remember, they were building houses as fast as they could build them up to, to that point. I am told that people could literally walk into the community, pick out the house that they wanted that was empty and just find out what bank had it and go down and make the terms for themselves. And they would do pretty much whatever you said you were going to do as long as they were going to recoup their money. And here was the church in the middle of the community and it was literally in shock. It was now, by this time, down below 200 in attendance, and the attendance was falling. It's an understatement to say no one was prepared for this whatsoever. The east wing and the south wing of the church were closed off and uh, allowed to deteriorate. To make matters worse, the expansion of, Is of uh, Amarillo was going southwest, and of course... Eastridge is north, northeast, so that would have been a rough situation at some point in time, regardless, without the airbase closing. But I want you to keep in mind the 1964 church, the church that was the perfect church plant, the church that was thriving, that was having three services a day. I believe that Satan's mission on this earth is fairly narrow. Now I won't say simple. I'm not one of these people that, that make fun of Satan and try to belittle his power. I don't do that. But I, I will say that I think that his, his focus is fairly narrow in this world. And I believe that his will for individuals is this. I believe that his first focus is to keep someone lost in any way that he can to keep them from accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's his number one work. He wants you to slip off into eternity without Jesus Christ. No doubt in my mind, that's why he wants, first of all, 
But if that fails, then, and you become a Christian, you give your life to Christ, then I think his focus is to make you ineffective, just to keep you on the back burner, to keep you from making any real difference for the kingdom. And I think that really sums it up. And First Peter says to still kill and destroy. And I'm thinking about this as the means to that end. Now, of course, when we think of a church, we're talking about individuals who are, who are hopefully are saved, working together to further the kingdom of God. And uh, by definition, it would, it would imply that all the people in the church are saved. Unfortunately, that's, that's probably not the case. Not everyone in church is, is saved. But for the sake of this discussion, let's assume that they are. So Satan's focus for the church becomes this. How can I make that church ineffective? How can I make them just pass through time without really making any kind of a difference? Or in the case of a church that is thriving, what can I do to them that will shake them up so bad that they become ineffective? And I think Satan's answer would, would be to that would be to do something that would cause them to doubt their faith in God. So think about that for a moment. Why was that 1964 church working so well? Was it because there were 10,000 people living in the neighborhood and several thousand more on the airbase? No, that's not the reason. It was working because the membership of that church was seeking God's will. That's why it was working. They were asking the right questions. They were asking God, what do you want us to do? How are we supposed to do that that you want us to do? What do you want us to do now? What do you want us to do next? All of those questions directed towards God. And then they would see God respond with miracles. And they would acknowledge God's work and they would say, well, it's working, God, and we're learning to trust you. So what's next, God? And there would be steps of faith, seeking God's work, trusting Him more and more with every situation. Well, I believe Satan does not like that at all. When a church or individuals are doing that, when they're seeking God's will, Satan does not like that, and he wants to stop it. So what did he do? I said before that Satan has a narrow focus, and again, I don't take him lightly. I believe he is very smart. I believe he is very intelligent. But I've noticed through the years that he tends to repeat his tactics. And that's why the scripture is so valuable to us because we can look and see what Satan's done in the past and he repeats it in this present day. Some would say, well, is that because Satan's stupid? No, it's not because he's stupid. It's because it works. It works. There are a lot of different biblical examples that I could give of this. Uh, one that came to my mind was Abraham which was recorded in Genesis 12:10 it says there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe Abram and Sarah were on their way to the promised land things were going great everything was on schedule everything was good and Satan thinks how do I throw a wrench into this and it was time to make Abraham pause and to question God's provision for them Time to make him think that this plan that God has told him about maybe has gone wrong. 
Time for them to do what will get Abraham's progress stopped. To get him to waste time. There's a phrase that's not spoken in this passage, but it's implied that's often spoken in the Bible. And it's one of the two things I want you to come away with today. A phrase that you never want to hear spoken about you. Like I said, it's not in this particular passage, but it is definitely implied. And it's a ministry-killing phrase. And my congregation knows it so well that every time it's coming up, they'll always repeat it with me. And that is, they did what was right in their own eyes. How many times do you see that in the Bible? Everything is going along great. People are following God. They're asking the right questions. They're doing what God wants them to do. Everything is on track. And then something happens and it'll say they did what was right in their own eyes. Every time I see that, I thought, oh boy, I know what's coming next. I tried to find out how many times in the Bible we see that phrase, but uh, Google let me down. It didn't tell me, but uh, I know it's in there a lot. Um, it's mentioned several times. I also think about in Jesus' ministry also. We know Jesus was preaching and Jesus was teaching. People were flocking to see him. They would follow them all the way around the Sea of Galilee to hear him, to, to experience miracles, to experience healing. Everything was going perfect. Everything was great. The disciples were part of, they would have told you, they were part of a vital amazing, growing ministry. Then Judas did what he did and everything changed and they headed for the hills. It seems every time this comes up, there's been a period where everything seems to be wonderful. Everything seems to be going perfect. And then there's some surprise situation. And when it comes, either said or implied, they did what was right in their own eyes. Now, I don't know how you interpret that phrase, but to me it means that they stopped trusting God and they decided to take matters into their own hands. If you think about it, it even goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Things were rolling along great. They were walking in the garden with God. They were fellowshipping. And then the fall. Why? Because Satan introduced doubt and they did what was right in their own eyes. When a church gets to that point, when a church is surprised by what happens around them and they decide to do what's right in their own eyes, it brings a halt to ministry. It brings a halt to effectiveness for sure. Which brings me back to Eastridge. When the bottom fell out at Eastridge, when everything changed, what seemed to be almost overnight, they did what was right in their own eyes. They kept trying to bring the church back in the same way that it had grown to that point. And it wasn't the same community, and so it wasn't working. Everything had changed, and they couldn't figure it out. I believe their mistake was that they were not seeking a new direction for God who knew the past and the present and the future. So to continue the story, Eastridge is basically becoming a ghost town. The air base is gone. And then the Vietnam War ends in 1972. Suddenly, there are going to be thousands of refugees from Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. They need a place to go. They're coming to the United States. 
Now, in defense of East Ridge Baptist, they did start a Lao congregation, which was the first Lao congregation in Texas, which is still here today. And that was a step in the right direction. From 1972, other refugee groups began to need homes. And they came to East Ridge, over 26 languages. But for some reason, East Ridge Baptist didn't go any further towards reaching refugees. After I was there for a little while and I talked to some of the people that went through that situation, I could see that they thought that the refugee situation was just going to be a temporary situation. They were going to go through that and then everything in the community was going to go back to what was normal. People were going to move back. English-speaking people were going to move back into the community. The church was going to build back up. And this was kind of the pie-in-the-sky idea that they had. In 2008, when I came there, there were 20 English-speaking people left in the church. To really explain this, I have to tell you what I got from the majority of the leadership when I talked to them. They really felt like the Laotians was, was a ministry that they needed to be involved in, but again, it was going to be a temporary situation, and everything was going to get back to normal. That's what seemed right to them. But it was not reality at all. The refugees' presence was not temporary. They didn't know that, but if they just asked God, God did. So here it is, 2008, 20 English-speaking members, mostly over 75 years in age, about 20 Laotians, and a pretty healthy children's program. And basically a church that is still in shock after 30 years. Then through a coincidence, I visited Eastridge one Sunday to hear the interim pastor. In fact, he's preaching at Eastridge this morning. And uh, I ended up being called to lead the music. And I did that for three months and uh, then I was called to pastor the church. But the feeling that I had when they called me there was that, that there was very little hope for the church. That basically I was being called there just to keep that church open as long as I could. You know, it's going to close, it's inevitable, but you know, do the best you can. Keep it open as long as you can. I didn't believe that. I didn't believe that God had that plan for that church at all. But in man's eyes, the situation looked hopeless. But then came the second phrase that God's pounded into my head, and you hear it all throughout the Scripture, often after people have done what was right in their own eyes. And they've come to the conclusion, they've come to the place that they think, well, this is not working. We've done what's right in our own eyes. It's only got worse. The situation is out of our hands never was in their hands, but they're recognizing now that it's out of their hands and it's just not going anywhere. And that phrase is simply this. It was say, but God. But God. Just when you get to the point, when you think all is lost, the story screeches to a halt, there's a moment there when silence you think, well, this just might be the end. It just might be over. This might be game over, Satan may win, 
but then, but God. But God had a plan. And I think every church, and we don't have it displayed at our church, and when I get back, it's going to be. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, God had a plan. Now notice something very subtle, but I think something that's very important here. God's plan wasn't a new plan. It wasn't a new plan at all. It wasn't plan B. I've heard people say before, well, you know, this happened and God came up with plan B. Well, no, He did not. God does not do plan Bs. God does not need plan Bs. Ever. Ever. Why? Because He knows the past, He knows the present, and He knows the future. What would He need a plan B for? It's about right here where I had to learn the difference between God's will and God's plan. They're not the same. God's will... God's will for our lives, and, and it applies to a church too, is, is there's point A in the beginning, there's point B with people, it's, it's eternity with Him in heaven, and His will is that you go this straight line to get there, that you make all the decisions, the right decisions, along this straight line to get there. That's His will. Do any of us do that? Well, if you do, I'd like to meet you after the service and get your secret. Because I don't know anyone that goes from, from point A to point B without making a few detours. But that's His will. That's that straight line along there. Is His will always done? No, because we make choices that are not in His will. But is His plan always accomplished? Yes, it is. It is. It's something different. Even though in His plans we do some things in His plan that is not His will, the fact of the matter is He's not surprised. He's not shocked. He's not surprised. He's not amazed because He knows the past, the present, and the future. He's seen it all. He knows it. He's seen it already. Even when Satan throws in wrenches from time to time, He's not, he's not surprised. I think of it, I try to think of it like a chess match with Satan as the opponent. Unlike Satan, God's already seen the entire match. He knows every move that Satan is going to make. He knows how he is going to counter it. And he knows that he's going to have checkmate in the end. He knows that already. So that would be his plan. He doesn't need a plan B when Satan makes a certain move or when people makes a certain move because he already knows how it's going to go. He already knows he will win. All of these are in God's plan because he's seen them. Even the ones that he did not will. He knows all the changes that will surprise us with Eastridge Baptist Church. He know, knew that the air base was going to be closed. He knew exactly when it was going to be closed. And it's same with your church here with Melanie Park. There's one plan. There's one plan for this church that God has had from the beginning of time. Nothing that is ever going to happen in this community is going to surprise God. He has a plan for this church just like He has for Eastridge, had for Eastridge and continues to have. 
Did God intend it to take 30 years for Eastridge to get out of shock and move on? No. You will never convince me that was God's will. Now understand this is not about me, but here's what happened that changed in 1960, that changed the 1964 church to the 2008 church and then now to the 2017 church. Uh, I can't go into all of the parts, but here's one of the main ones. I've shared this story before, but in 1999, I went with a tour group from Amarillo to Israel. And I won't name names because you may know the group leader and you would agree that he's, he's kind of a crazy person. But a lot of fun to go on a tour with. Um, he, he, in fact, he calls himself a crazy Texan. That's how he describes himself when he's in another country. Um, anyway, we were doing an extra activity on a Thursday night. Everything was pretty much planned out on the tour, but there were a few open times. And so Thursday night was open, and there was at the YMCA in uh, Jerusalem, they were doing a cultural dance presentation on Thursday evenings. So we decided to go, and the Y held about 1,000 people in the auditorium, and it was packed. We got there early, and we waited for the performance to start, and so our crazy leader talked us into standing up in front of that thousand people and singing Yellow Rose of Texas in Jerusalem. And we did it. That's the amazing part. We did it. Well, that got something started. Then all of the different countries started standing up and singing a song from their country. It was pretty neat. Until... Finally, a group of five Japanese Christians stood up and started singing Amazing Grace. Each country started standing up and joining in with them, singing Amazing Grace in their language. I tell you what, I had to pinch myself. I thought I was in heaven. I really did. I thought something had happened and I was in heaven all of a sudden. And I stood there and I stopped singing and I looked around and I just loved what I was experiencing. And I said right there at that point, I says, God, if you've got anything, if you've got an opening in international ministries, I'm there. I would love to be there. I would love to do that. Well, I came back to Amarillo after that trip, and that changed me. You know, it's funny. People says, what's your favorite spot in Israel? Oh, it's the Sea of Galilee. Oh, it's the Garden Tomb. And I say the YMCA. And it was. The YMC there, hey, changed my life being there. So when I came back, I was expecting, I was expecting to go back. We were going to pack up and move somewhere. God was going to put me in international ministries. And it uh, didn't happen right away. And I literally had dreams at night of an international church. And I could just see it. And, and actually at one point, I thought I'd figured out which church it was. I was wrong, of course, but I thought I knew which one it was. But I didn't forget about it, and I still wanted it, and I waited for it. And then this uh, divine fluke happened where I ended up going to Eastridge to, uh, to hear my uh, old seminary professor preach. And uh, it all fell into place. It was nine years later after Israel, and it was four miles from my house. By the grace of God, I can say I had no clue 
when I got there. I looked at the children in children's church, and I, I asked. I'd always been big about family going to church. Family going to church was big for me growing up. And I thought, well, where are these children's parents? And I found out that they spoke Korean from Burma. And I told our group of 20, you know, we need to minister to these people. We need to get them in the church with their children. To my surprise, we had a Korean couple coming who had assumed American names, Joseph and Carol. And uh, I was sharing with Joseph about how I felt like we needed to reach out to the Korean people. And he says, uh, you know I'm Korean, right? And I said, no, I did not. And he says, well... Um, I work at Tyson's, and this week a man has started work there who is a refugee, and he was a pastor in Burma. And I said, set up a meeting. So he did, and, and he kind of shared the same dream as I had. And to make a long story short, about a week later he brought 30 people with him, and there were 60, and we went up to 120. At one point, about 160. We're at about 120 right now of Korean members in our church. We still have the Lao and then we also have another uh, Burmese group that speaks Karini that uh, about 30 to 40 that are meeting on Sunday mornings there. God had also laid on my heart that there was a hunger and poverty issue in our community. So we begin feeding 160 kids a day in our 20 by 80 foot fellowship hall which was the original church. And Strangely enough, space became an issue. You know, see, people would say, I thought you had 18,000 square feet. But the churches built in that day are little itty-bitty rooms. The only room that we had of any size was the fellowship hall and, and the, uh, the auditorium. And we needed a large all-purpose building to feed and to operate programs to keep the kids safe and to have an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus and to reach out to the Islamic community that's there as well, the uh, Somalian kids especially. And we found out that they love to play basketball. And uh, I wanted an opportunity to build relationships with them. And I, I prayed a prayer one of those days when we were feeding the kids, and the, the uh, Islamic kids would come in and eat and then leave. And I said, God, I'd like to spend more time with them. I get to spend about 20 hours a week with them now. We could invite them to come to church all day, but they'd never come. Um, but they can't resist basketball, and, and uh, even if they have to go to a church to play it. Well, I propose that, we, that what ended up to be a $400,000 building be built. I, re, I pitched this to our 20 retired people. And uh, I knew the look on their face. I had the same feeling, you know, as how is that possible? How's that possible? Again, by the grace of God, I challenged the people with this. I said, okay, let's do this. Let's just pray. Let's just ask God if that's what He wants. Because if He wants that, He'll provide it. He's got the money. He can do it. Well, it was also in His plan. And to make this as short as possible, we knew He wanted it. We started on it on that other block that they bought in 1954 and didn't know why they really bought it. And we raised enough money to buy steel at first, you know, just to, to be ready to go before a big price increase. But 
um, we finally had to take out a $120,000 loan just to get up the shell for it. And then we found out that a man, in fact, I'm preaching out of his Bible this morning, and yes, that is Green Bay Packer Green. There's a lot of stories there about that too. But anyway, he, um, he hadn't been to Eastridge in 30 years. He was a bus driver when it had a bus ministry. And after the airbase closed and they quit the bus ministry, he went to a church that did bus ministry. Still lived in the community. Still helped with the church by leaving things on the doorstep. And he would put uh, Mr. Eastridge. No one knew who was doing it. It was a part of God's plan. He had the same vision for the mission center. And he came, he came down with cancer. And uh, they took him to hospice, I found out, on the day that we broke ground for the mission center. He drove by there and saw that. And he had already 30 years ago made his will out for some sort of a center to be built in the East Ridge community. And we had broke broke ground on that and took out the loan. So by the time he, had, he passed away and by the time that we dedicated the building, we were able to burn the note that we had taken, taken out on it. I don't think we even had to make a payment on it. By that time, God had expanded the dream to include the old east wing to be made into ESL classrooms and then uh, uh, like a dormitory situation for church groups that came to be able to sleep there and stay there and work in the community and again it was all paid for. We still have to rely on other churches and individuals to, for our operating expenses from day to day but because Eastridge is a very poor community but we never have any problem. God always provides. As long as it's what God wants He has the provisions to make it happen. But here's what I really want you to get from this message this morning. Melanie Park, every other church, time and time again I see churches that are, that are rolling along. Things are going great. They're being effective. They almost become automatic in what they do and they think that it'll always be that way. It'll just be more of the same. Then Satan uses one of his most effective tools, change. And somehow in the changes, Satan whispers a word of doubt. People will begin to wonder, well, what happened? Did God lose control? And people will begin to say things like, well, we just need to take control of this situation and get it turned back around, basically, and then maybe we'll give it back to God. But we need to take control for now. And we panic and we forget about faith and we do what's right in our own eyes when what we should really do is just say okay and realize that it was part of God's plan all along say okay this is a change we didn't count on what do you want us to do now God how do we handle this a matter of seeking instructions from God and accepting that change is okay we need to realize that it's the same neighborhood it's the same church. It's the same God. It's just a different ministry. I could tell you about a hundred different miracles that God's done in the last few years. But just remember Jeremiah 29 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God has a plan for Eastridge. God has a plan for Melanie Park. God has a plan for every church in every community. Prepare for change. Think about change. Pray about change. But whatever you do, don't let Satan fool you into thinking that it's not part of God's plan. Because he's seen the past, he sees the present, and he's seen the future. He's never surprised. Same God, same plan, different ministry. It's all good. I want to thank you for letting me share with you today God's story at Eastridge, and I'd like to pray with you. Father, we thank you, are so thankful that you are a God of the past, present, and future. Father, you want us to have comfort in knowing that nothing ever surprises you. It so often surprises me. So often I think I have things figured out and know just the way things are going to go only to find it's nothing like that at all. Father, when that happens, let me be still and know that you are God and that you have a plan. It's not plan B. Nothing went wrong. You had it, all that information from the beginning of time. If all we need to do is to find your will and do it. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for their willingness to reach out to other communities and be a part of other ministries. And Father, because of that, I know that Satan would like to see things slow down. I know that Satan would like to see things come to a halt. I know Satan would like to see time wasted. But Father, I pray that you would give every individual in this church and the church as a whole, wisdom to expose Satan, wisdom to seek you and not ever do what's right in their own eyes. I pray in your son's precious name. Amen.